You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We're back in Kings, 2 Kings, chapter 13. And uh, it's an interesting text this morning. It seems somewhat disjointed as you read. There are three different stories, and hopefully we'll get through all three of them this morning. But I believe there is a theme that runs through. Um, we're going to talk this morning about surprises. How many folks do you like surprises? You, you actually like surprises. How many people do you hate surprises? All right, three of you. Okay. All right. We have a son who loves surprises. A matter of fact, if he could throw himself his own surprise party and be surprised, he would do it. Um, and Andy, right, uh, loves surprises that he, so much that he wanted his baby the gender of the baby, to be a surprise. And so Katie is due any second now, right? And we have no idea the gender of the baby. And now Andy's mad because he wants to know, right? (laughs) Doesn't like that surprise. Surprises are interesting. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Years ago, we were on vacation in Florida, and we were at a restaurant, and Kim ordered a Greek salad. If you like green stuff, it's a Greek salad. And so we were sitting at the table, and the salad came. And in the middle of the salad was a big pile of what she thought was feta cheese. Greek salad, feta cheese, no-brainer. But when she took a bite out of the middle of that salad, it was not feta cheese. It was actually potato salad. Yeah, it's gross, right? I mean, if you like potato salad, that's fine. But Kim doesn't. And she ordered a feta salad. And so when she got the waitress to come over, she said, listen... This is really strange, but my, my feta salad has potato salad in it. And she says, that's the way we do it. And Kim said, well, I was just surprised. And the woman said, well, a good surprise, right? And Kim said, no, no, it's potato salad. And we come to a text this morning that there are some things in the text that will not surprise you. But there are several things that will. And some of them are mind-blowing, actually. And, and one is like potato salad. And so let's look at the text this morning. Stay with me, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter... I'm sorry, don't go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Kings chapter 13, starting at verse number 1. In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therein. So we're in 2 Kings, right? We come to a portion of Scripture now. We're talking about the kings of Israel, and we find out that the king of Israel is doing wrong. Is that a surprise to you? No. The truth is, we should be accustomed to this. Now, as you read through Kings, it gets to the point where you say, oh, come on, man. I mean, this is an ongoing problem, and for every king, as they finish their reign for Israel... All of them are bad. It just gets old. But we're not surprised, right? Because we know this has been the pattern. 
Israel has turned their back on God. Their kings, their leaders have turned their backs on God. And so, no surprise that Israel again rebels. That's not surprising. Verse number three. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them unto the hand of Hazel, king of Syria, and unto the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, all their days. So, Israel rebels, and now Israel receives the recompense of the rebellion. Are you surprised at that? No, we should not be. We, we may not like this in the world that we live in, but there are literally consequences for our actions. And we try to tell ourselves that there are no consequences. You can do whatever you want to do, but my friend, it's not true. It's just not. And, and for our parents today, understand, some of you folks try to make a safe landing for your kid all the time without ever facing consequences, and you think you're loving them, but you're hurting them. Because the real world does not work this way. There are consequences for our actions. And as human beings, there are consequences when we step outside of God's plan and purpose. Now listen to me this morning. Um, Lewis talks about humanity as the human machine. And, and he says that humanity is built by a designer and a creator, and they were designed to function in just a certain way. And it's true. And when the machine functions that way, it's good. But when it doesn't function that way, it's bad. One of the, the men in our church this week, Brother Jacques, you put gasoline into a diesel engine or vice versa? Vice versa. So you put diesel into a gas engine. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, I'm not a mechanic. I don't know. It's a bad thing, right? Uh, it's a bad thing. Can the car run like that? No. It sputtered. All right. It's, it's not designed to do that. that that's, that's not its intention. It can't run that way. And we live in a world that we just think that we can say, God, your plan, your program, your design, your reality is not mine, and I'll do whatever I want to do. Now, you can do that. But understand, when you do, you have stepped outside of the machine that God has made to function the way it's supposed to function, and it will not work. A matter of fact, there are consequences for that. Always consequences. And the thing about consequences is this. You and I can choose to sin. We do it all the time. But you don't get to choose the consequences of that sin. And my brother and sister in Christ, there are some consequences that scar forever. And so, understand that Israel has rebelled. Israel is now recompensed. This is not a surprise. Verse number four, and Jehoahaz besought the Lord. Right? This is an evil king. He now is feeling the consequences of his action. That last verse said that the Syrians like continually oppress them over and over again. They're paying for this. And now the king of Israel, the evil king, 
cries out to the Lord. Let me ask you a question, and just think about it. Is this a surprise, yes or no? Yes? Who says no? Who says yes? Now, okay, a surprise. In a way, it is a surprise, because here's a wicked king crying out to the Lord. But in another way, it's not. You know why? Because he wants relief. He's in trouble. There is great insight in this chapter on humanity because he wants relief from the consequences. Now, um, that doesn't surprise me because, because I think in my own life, when I have trouble and pressure, I just want out of it. But as I think about this king, here's my thought as a human being. You are a wicked king. You have rebelled against God. You couldn't care less about him. Now you're feeling the weight of it. So, in my eyes, you made your bed. Not lying it. Right? That, that, that was my family motto as we grew up. Very compassionate people. You made your bed. Now lie in it. This is your just dessert. You deserve exactly what you're getting. And if I wanted to be biblical about it, I would go to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9, that says, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Jehoahaz, evil king, you sinned, willingly rebelled. Now you're feeling the recompense of that sin. Now you want relief. But, but hey, listen, pal, you've turned from God. You made your bed, now lie in it. That's Rick. But here's the real first surprise for me. Verse number four. Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened to him. The Lord hears him. This wicked, undeserving, sinful king who couldn't care less about God, and now he's feeling the heat and just wants relief, he cries out, and the God of heaven, the God we serve, hears him. And it, frankly, it surprises me. Because if it was me, it's like, you made your bed, now line it. This is not God. And then he says, why? He hears him. Verse number four continues. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Now, now think about this. Jehoahaz sins. He rebels. The Lord punishes him by bringing the Syrians to punish him. He now cries out for relief, and God sees the oppression that he brought to him and feels sad for him and hears him. And that word oppression is very interesting. If, if you are familiar with the Bible, when God sees the oppression of his people, that's not new. Uh, Exodus chapter 3, the same phrase is used when they are in slavery, and they cry out, and God sees it. So surprise number one, he hears, he has compassion on him. Surprise number two, verse number five, and the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Surprise number two is not just that God heard him, but then God sends them a savior. We don't know who the Savior is. Um, it could be the king. It could be salvation. But we know that they're delivered. Now listen to me. Sometimes in the Old Testament, we have this idea that the God of 
the Old Testament's God of wrath, God of the New Testament's God of love, and the twain never meet. That's not true. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, right? And, and if you want to talk about wrath, you should read the book of Revelation when Jesus Christ comes and he judges this world. It's terrifying. It's from the most loving man that ever existed, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the same. But as you read this text, I hope that you see the love of the God that we serve. This man and these people deserved nothing. That's not true. They deserved wrath. They deserved wrath. And God dealt with them. You think, well, that's mean. That's not right. That's unkind. But now listen to me. I think, I think we can understand this. If you're a parent here today, and you have you know, special little, I kept on calling him Eddie. When I, don't use the word Eddie because someone's name is Ed, and that's not right. Special little Ricky. Very good. Um, <laughs> special Ricky. And you say, I want the best for special Ricky because I have a plan for him, and I want him to grow up to be a productive man, a good, honest man with character who is giving, who works hard. And you, you have this idea. Well, you know as a parent that when they're born, that's not their idea. That beautiful child that's born is depraved. And left to himself or herself, they will be monsters. And so, in your kindness, you have to make sure that you discipline them. I know, bad word today, discipline, it's a good thing. We need restraint. We need to be told no. We need to associate. This is bad behavior. And you do that not because you hate them. You do that, and they might think, you hate me. Parents, if your kids are saying today, you hate me, you're parenting right. Really. You're you're doing something right. You hate me. Yes, that's why I went through 28 hours of labor, because I hate you. Right? But they think that. But you don't hate them. You see the big picture. You have a plan and purpose for them. And you love them and you understand that this, this moment of pain or discomfort for them is for the long haul. My friend, that, that is a small, minuscule, it doesn't even show up on the radar screen. The God of heaven who knows the beginning from the end allows pain in our life when we sin not to destroy us, but to call us back to him in his love, in his compassion. These are some of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 18, starting at verse 23. God speaking. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? God, God's asking, do you think that I take great pleasure that the wicked, the one who's turned their back, people or nations, do you think I take pleasure that they die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? This is God. The God of the Old Testament says, hey, I have no pleasure when the wicked die. I would rather that they turn and live. Listen to what he says in verse 31. Cast away from you, all your transgressions, which is broken trust, whereby you have transgressed, 
and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. This morning, I'm talking to the lost, that you are on a course for hell, and and you're looking to just run from God, and God is shouting this morning, Stop! Don't die in your sins. Don't continue on that path. Don't think that you know better than I do. He is shouting in your face, Why will you die? Turn and live. Live real life. And that's what he tells us. This is the God of heaven. So we're surprised. He listens. He sends a Savior. This is his heartbeat. And now here's the third surprise. After this happens, right, the the wicked king is granted reprieve. Not only that, they're dwelling in their tents again. Uh, they, They are. They're relieved. Everything's good. And you might expect now that Israel now turns as a nation back to God. But you might be surprised. Verse number 6. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. They do not turn. They've been given grace. They've been given reprieve. God heard, sent a Savior, and now when it's done, they go back to where they were before. Do you know why? Because what he wanted was relief and not relationship. It was painful. God, get me out of this pain. I want out of this. I just want relief. And so that's a good thing, but don't talk to me about relationship because I'm not interested in that. My dear friend this morning, we've got to be careful. When we start promising a gospel that just gives relief, we're not telling the truth. Right? When we say, hey, listen, your life's a mess right now, or you really feel like you're in a jam right now, and nothing's working out for you, if you just add Jesus, everything will be okay. Right? You'll be healthy, wealthy, wise. You'll be a better husband and father. You'll have joy in your life. Your kids will be obedient. Your finances will come in order. Now, some of those things are byproducts of that. But Jesus never came preaching relief. He came preaching redemption, repentance, turning, coming back to Christ. And too often, people in our congregation and in Christian spheres who are lost will come to Jesus for relief because I want my life to be better. But when the relief doesn't happen, they're gone. It's a dangerous thing. You've got people in our church who sit and hear the gospel over and over again, and they're in trouble, and they like what they hear. But after a while, you know what? They realize it's a relationship, and they're out because it does cost something. The gospel will cost. Jesus came preaching redemption, telling us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are lost without Christ. No one's coming. We were talking this week, Kim and I, about the verse. She's probably talking to other people as well, but she does talk to me once a week. And she was, she was saying how the phrase from John chapter 14, verse 6, just struck her. 
where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so when we think that my religion, my good works, my showing up in a Baptist church is somehow meriting any kind of favor toward God, we're wrong. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Be careful. We just want relief without relationship. And brother or sister in Christ, be careful. Because this part of humanity is in us as well. That we turn off the path, we move in another direction, we think we know better, and then trouble comes because God loves us and deals with us and is calling us back. It's like, ouch, that hurts. And so God, stop, I promise, I will now because I want relief. But we really don't repent. And you know what happens then? It's just another time we go back there again. This was the problem that Jehovah has. Um, the surprise is he didn't turn back. But really not a surprise. We do the same thing. He wanted relief. Not a relationship and redemption. Verse number 14 of our text. Elijah now is coming to the end of his life. We have a clip now of Joash another king of Israel. Verse 14, Now Elijah was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And again, I don't know why he's saying this. He's an evil king. But what he's saying is true. Do you know what that was said before? Remember that? Remember what you've, have you heard that before, that statement? Anybody hear that statement before? Nobody? Beth, it happened before with Elijah, right? The same thing. What's being said is the prophetic word of God is our defense and our safety. And now you're passing away. And the truth is the word of God is our defense and safety, even today. Verse number 15. Remember, Elijah's dying now. And Elijah said unto him, the king, take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elijah put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elijah said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. And thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphex till thou have consumed them. Really important. The man of God says, Listen, I'm dying. God in his love is still going to deliver you. Did you catch that? Still offering deliverance. And he says, this arrow now represents ultimate victory over the Syrians. Here's what it means. Shoot the arrow. So he shoots it. And now he tells him, grab some more arrows. You know what this symbolism is now. And he tells him in verse number 18. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. Strike out, fly these things. These, this is the victory of the Lord. And he smote three times and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, You should have smitten five or six times. Then you would have had you smitten the, the Syrians till you have consumed him, whereas now thou hast only thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. It's a strange story, isn't it? It's like, why is he so bent out of shape? He seems kind of grumpy all of a sudden. What's up with Elijah? What's up with Elijah is this. He just told the king, listen, God wants to give you ultimate victory. Here's what the arrow represents. Now shoot these arrows. Shoot them out. And he shoots three and not six. And he says, hey, listen, he's mad because 
You had an opportunity to have complete victory, but you chose not to. And we don't know why he chose not to, but there are some reasons. It could be that the fact is that Syria was a buffer between the Assyrians, and it was really convenient to keep them there. Maybe the case. Maybe he, the king, was ready to collapse already. Maybe he was tired of fighting the Assyrians. War is draining. Ask any newlywed couple. It's draining. Maybe he was comfortable. This is how life is. This is what it used to be. This is what we do around here. And maybe this call for more was just a more of a demand that he wasn't ready. But Elijah said, I'm not happy because you were offered more. And again, I, I just think this is so insightful to humanity. Brother or sister in Christ, our union with him has brought about a new regime. This morning, believer, you are underneath the power of grace. We have liberty from the power of sin. And we are confronted with the truth that there is more for us. There's more for us. And for whatever reason this morning, as believers, we get comfortable or we're ready to collapse and we've been fighting this sin and this struggle over and over again. Or it's convenient because we're just getting by in our life. And God says, strike out, man. I have given you the freedom to live the way you were designed to live. And yet, we strike three times in our content. We're content with our Christian life now. Now, listen to me. I, I've had a problem for years, and maybe you can, can understand this. Now, I'm warning you, don't say amen in the next few minutes, because you'll be embarrassed if you do. So don't say amen. You can say amen at other times, but don't say it now. And you should say amen when you hear something that you agree with, because it helps the pastor know that someone in the pew is listening. Amen? Uh, okay, that was weak. That's okay. Don't say it now. Here's my idea forever, and maybe this will help you, as we talk about Christian lives being transformed by Christ. I used to think that take the average lost guy or girl and stand them here, and then a saved man or woman, stand them here together, same age, right, 25, 30 years old, that hands down every time the saved man or woman should be a better person than the lost person. Right? That's how I think. Does, does anyone else ever think like that? that? That Christians should just automatically be better. And I get so bent out of shape, because like, what's wrong with you? Christian people should be miles ahead of those who are lost. But then it dawned on me that that's not how this works. There are some people who are lost without Christ, who are raised in wonderful homes, who have natural dispositions that are sweet and kind and loving. There are some people that naturally, I mean, they're really nice. We have lost friends. They're some of the nicest people you'd ever meet they would give you the shirt off their back. I mean, honestly, because of God's grace, raised in an environment, have a good disposition, they're decent people. And so you stand them up here, it's like, oh my goodness, they're outstanding. Then you take Joe Schmo, Christian, and here at 30 years old, this guy has a temper, he's struggling through sin, he's unkind at times, he's mean, he's yelling at his wife, it's like, okay, wait a minute, this guy's lost, that guy's saved, Christianity doesn't work. But if you do that, like I did, you've made a colossal mistake. Because this guy, who might be hard and not lovable, 
we don't understand where he came from. Right? For 30 years, he grew up in dysfunction. So much dysfunction that as you look at the dictionary, his family portrait is there. That's how dysfunctional it was. Where, I mean, brokenness and sadness and pain and sin. And so this guy, who knows he's a sinner, comes to Christ with 30 years of garbage. And God saves him. And guess what? Oh, he's not like this guy. Yet. Yet. There's a work to do. And God is doing that work. And so I understand this morning, there are folks in this room, that you are a miserable bugger. Yes, I'm talking about you. And you got issues, man. Like I got issues. And, and it's not fair to compare someone who had a great life and good disposition with you. But what I am saying is this. In Christ, I don't have to be what I used to be. And after about 10 years in the faith, I shouldn't have it all mastered, but I shouldn't be as angry as I used to be. I shouldn't be punching walls as often as I was before. I shouldn't let that language just flow for me like it used to. I shouldn't be gossiping as much as I used to, or unkind, or grumpy, or irritable. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, for whatever reason, we have this idea that I'm okay And God says, no, you're not okay. I have offered the believer victory. And by victory, I mean obedience to God, transforming power, that I can walk now in a newness of life. I don't have to be. I love Newton's quote when he says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I um, long to be. I am not what I hope to be in the world to come. But by God's grace, I am not what I used to be. And that should be the Christian life, that the transforming power of Jesus Christ is changing me. How does that happen? When I kill the flesh, I'm dead, right, unto sin. I nail to the cross, and then I'm alive in Jesus Christ. And some of you folks, you're discouraged because you've been trying to do this all on your own. So you're ready to collapse. It's convenient to stay the way you are. But what I'm telling you is, quit trying to do it on your own. You cannot do it on your own. You were not designed to do it on your own. It's the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit that completely transforms a man or woman into the image of Christ. And it's time for us to say, God, you say, strike. Not just three times, but strike over and over again. By your grace and by your spirit, God, this morning, help me to kill this flesh. Help me to reckon myself dead to sin. I don't have to stay that comment that comes to my mind. I don't. I know I feel like I do, but I don't. I can walk in this newness of life. Take his yoke upon you. Because it's easy. And his burden is light. And if we can come to the point where we understand... God is, we are already living in victory. We we already have the victory. It's a matter now of saying, God, by your grace, help me to kill this flesh, walk in newness of life. This morning when I get up, Spirit of God, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in my flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
And so, brother or sister in Christ, I'm okay that Joe Schmo here, who had a wonderful life, is better than most of us. But I'm not okay with you and I standing here thinking, it's okay. This is just who I am. It's not okay. Because God, by his Spirit, has given victory. We need to trust him and believe him and walk in that power and grace this morning. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, we're going to stop. We're going to stop. All right, I got too much. I'll stop. One more surprise. All right, the, the last, okay, one more surprise. I can't help myself because this is really the best part. The, the next verse, 20, Elijah dies, right, and he, he's dead. And so you read the story, and Elijah was buried. Uh, they buried him, and the bands of Moabites came in. And so these guys burying, so Elijah's buried, verse 21. And it came to pass as they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men coming. They cast the dead man into the sepulcher of Elijah. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood on his feet. Can I tell you something? That story surprises me. Does it not surprise you? It's like, wait a minute, that's weird. Maybe that's not even right. Maybe someone threw that in there. Maybe that's not correct. Maybe that's just fantasy. But listen to me, it's not fantasy. Anybody hear the story? Back in 1990, an Iranian hunter captured a snake, and the way he captured it was he took the butt of his rifle and pressed it on the snake's head. It was a double-barrel shotgun. True story. As he pressed the head of that snake, the body coiled up around the rifle and squeezed the trigger. Shot the man. I think the report goes it shot another man, too. Now, listen to me. That's bizarre. And usually, snakes don't shoot people. Right? Right? Usually, that's not what happens. And usually, right, dropping a guy on the bones of a prophet doesn't bring that guy to life. Usually, that doesn't happen. But what the Bible says here is that it did happen. And whether it's Elijah's bones uh, giving life or... Christ's cross giving life, right? It did happen. It does happen. And we're reminded here in this text a glimpse of redemption that ultimately every believer in Christ will rise again. This is the idea of the text. It's a glorious thought. It's a glorious truth, especially coming off of Easter, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is for all of us in our text. Did you notice the name of the man who was thrown in Elijah's tomb? Hmm. You didn't notice his name? Why? It's not given. It, it's, it's not on there. Isn't this strange? This keeps on happening in Kings. All these unknown names, these people that we have no idea, God chose his power through. And this is Joshmo Israelite. We don't know his name. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a king. He's the average guy. And yet, he is resurrected. So, believer, understand the power of Jesus Christ this morning is this, that the average believer, if there is such a thing, just as Christ has risen from the tomb, we shall rise as well. It's a glorious truth. And so as we face this world, right, this, this text surprises us. Some things, ah, not so surprised. Other things surprised. Some good, some bad. But what a surprise it will be. One day, 
when there's a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And we who are alive and remain shall not prevent those who have gone before. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead shall be raised. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air to meet the Lord, and so shall we ever be. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.